All right, classes are getting smaller and smaller for the last week. My goodness, supposed to scare you all the way the first week. So. Uh, we have coming up a homework that is due this week, or a double homework actually in your case that is due on Friday. We have a quiz eight, which is in class on Friday, which I already told you what that's going to be, right? Didn't tell you? Thought I did. Order of the planets, pretty much. Order of the planets. I'll probably throw the sun and Alpha Centauri, the Andromeda Galaxy, and you just list them all, put them all in order, one through twelve. So starting with the sun and working your way outward. So should be very, should be relatively easy. You have the whole week to look at it. So I want I'd like everybody to get a twelve, so I can just look at them and give twelves on them. So give you a twelve on the last quiz. And then the other one is the observations project, which is coming up due on Friday as well. So everything else is coming up. Everything else is due Friday. And then I will get as much of it possible graded before your final exam. But your final exam is Monday, so it doesn't give me a lot of time to get it all graded. So I do have your article reviews are graded. In fact, everything you gave me before about 1 or 2 o'clock on Friday is graded, and grades will be up later this afternoon. I took it all home. I got it all graded. I just didn't put the grades into the system. So you will have everything there. So all I have left to grade for you guys is this and the final. So I'm hoping I certainly have the homeworks and the quiz graded by the exam. I'm going to try to get the observations done if I can too for you and have those all ready. That way when you come in at the final, you'll at least have grades for everything else and you know what you need on the final to get, you know, get an A, get a B, get a C, whatever you whatever you need. So you hopeful I hope to have that done, but I don't give you a guarantee on the observations. I'm going to try to get those done for you. On the final, which is here is Monday, week from today. At 9 o'clock, so same time, it's chapters, as I told you before, it's chapters 16, 17, and 18 is the first half of the final, or the second half, depending on how I put it together. But half the final will be those three chapters. That's the new material. That's 16 that we finished co just finished covering, 17 that we've been working on, and 18 that's coming up. And old material. The second part of the exam will be old material. So that'll be, again, you need to study current materials for this. But for the old materials, all you need to study are your previous four exams. So I'm going to go through those four exams. I will take questions off of those. The format may change. So true, a true-false question that was true might be false now. So don't just memorize everything. But if you know that material, you have no need to go back and study lectures from the beginning of the course, reread the textbook from the beginning of the course, look at homeworks from the beginning, anything else. You don't need to worry about that. If it wasn't on one of those four exams, it won't be on that part of the final. So that should hopefully condense your studying a little bit and have you, you know, focus on exactly what the material is that I think is important. The other one will again be a completely new exam on the material since the last, since exam four, will be material on 16, 17, and 18. And that was the, the dark matter, the cosmology that we're working on right now and probably finish up today, and the life in the universe that's coming up. Okay. Questions? 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 No? We've got it all done and ready to turn in tomorrow, right? No. Okay. Picture of the day for the day is another picture of the aurora. We've seen a few. This one was taken in Norway. And pretty picture of it there. You see it going from the horizon up well up almost well up overhead, it looks like. The way this picture was taken with the very wide, wide angle lens to get a whole big view of the sky going up there. 
the aurora again is very, is very green. A lot of green when the material strikes the atmosphere as it interacts with the oxygen and the nitrogen in the atmosphere. You'll also see this one has a lot of red in it and you can see it sort of here from a distance. You'll see that this it looks green below and then red up above and you get the same sort of thing on this portion. And you're just looking at different levels in the atmosphere and different concentrations of the different elements. So you're seeing if you're getting more of one of the elements that happens to glow red, when the particles interact with that part of the atmosphere it glows red. And when the particles interact lower down in the atmosphere, it actually interacts with more with a different particle, which turns green. So you actually get a combination there. And if you look, you can see, if you actually look, you can see the stars in the background, and you can actually see the stars through the aurora. So even the brighter areas of the aurora, you can actually see stars through, the, through it, because the aurora, instead of blocking out the light, is just a glow of a very specific wavelength of light. So it's just a glow of whatever that oxygen or nitrogen atom happens to like whatever, whatever light it happens to like to give out, whatever specific wavelength it likes to give out. So, so a little pretty scenery picture for today. So only a couple more to go. Questions? No? Again from the earth to the edge of the universe. Okay. And we were here last time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we were looking at this, and this I was telling you is where the universe became transparent. This is where the cosmic microwave background came from. So here's our Earth, not even close to scale. Okay. Couldn't even see the Earth. This would be, you know, beyond microscopic at this scale. But when you look out towards the edge of the universe, 14 million parsecs, 14,000 million parsecs away, you're looking way out at the edge and you're looking back in time. So as you look further back, you'd see, you know, nearby would be the closer galaxies, further back would be the most distant galaxies and the quasars that formed earlier. And then as you get back before that, you get back to the era before galaxies even formed. And what we call this photosphere of the universe, not a photosphere of the sun, but a photosphere of the universe, is the time between when Electrons and protons were just running around loose, not combined with each other, and when they actually combined with each other. So when they're loose, they were very good at absorbing all the radiation and they just collected all the radiation and trapped it. So we couldn't see beyond it, sort of the way we can't see beyond the photosphere of the sun. You know, we can't see down into the sun and see past the photosphere. Well, it's very similar out here when all of these particles are very, very good at blocking the radiation that existed at the time, so it couldn't get through. Once it did, once, these, once it, the universe expanded enough and cooled off enough for the atoms to combine and actually form hydrogen atoms instead of just loose protons and loose electrons, once they recombined here, all of a sudden you have atoms and all of a sudden the universe becomes transparent and light starts to flow through the universe. And that's the very back, that's the furthest edge that we can actually see. And that's what we see now as the microwave background. So we're seeing the surface of the universe everywhere as it was sh very shortly after the Big Bang. This, this era back here did not take a long time. It took a relatively short time for it to go from, you know, almost nothing to forming atoms. It took a very short amount of time. 
but before that we can't see it. We can't look back through that photosphere and see what's back behind there. So that was where we finished up last time. Now, still looking at the idea of cosmic inflation, and we have a couple of problems here. One is the, what we call the horizon problem. And what it means is that when we look at that photosphere of the universe, when we look out there, it looks the same in every direction. So it doesn't matter whether I look at it there, or I look at it there, and I look at it, I get, I, it, looks, it looks all the same. It looks very smooth. It's all the same temperature. Okay, so it's all the same temperature. Why is that, why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because you have something here, 13 billion light years to one side of the Earth, and it's the same temperature. It seems to know what the temperature is to something else, 13 billion light years on the other side of the Earth, and it seems to know, they seem to know what each one is doing. But there hasn't been enough time. I mean, there has it's only been 13 billion years, so how, they couldn't even communicate with themselves by, you know, light travel couldn't even travel across that far. So how could they be in what we call thermal contact to know to even out the temperatures? Why wouldn't we see rougher temperatures? So it's one of the things we call the horizon problem. No matter where we look, we see the same temperatures. And, but there's not been enough time. There's not been enough time for them to be touching each other, essentially. You know, it takes a little bit of time. If we sit, you know, sit a hot thing, a hot, hot pan out, no, boil some water in a pan and leave it out, it's real hot. It will slowly disperse over time. It takes it as amount of time to slowly cool off and eventually everything becomes the same temperature. It evens out. Well, the universe would do the same thing, but when you're talking about things that are further across than the age of the universe from one side to the other of the Earth, it's confusing. It's a problem as to why they know, why each one knows what the temperature of the other is. There hasn't been enough time for it to cool off. It would be like putting that pan out and checking it two seconds later and wondering why it's not the same temperature as the room. Well, it's going to take it a good hour or more to cool off and actually get down to, to even the temperatures. So that's one of the problems. We call that the horizon problem. Why does the universe look the same temperature in every direction? The other problem is the flatness problem. The universe looks very flat. You remember we went over these last time. We looked at, talked about an open universe, a critical or flat universe, and a closed universe. So those were our three different, three different possibilities we looked at. And what happens is that in order for the universe to still be here, you know, after 15 billion years, it still survived. It hasn't collapsed. So it didn't have so much matter that it actually collapsed on us. It didn't have so little matter that it actually flew apart and we're the only galaxy left. Everything else has flown apart from us. In order to still be here after this amount of time, the density of the universe when it was very early must have been almost exactly the critical density. And in fact, to one part in 10 to the 15th, now one part in 100 would be one part in 10 to the second. That would be, you know, 1%. So we're putting a lot of zeros between after that. That means it had to be almost exactly flat a long time ago in order for us to see the universe, to still have the universe here today, to have the universe look as flat as it still does. So it still looks to be, even though I've told you that it's accelerating, it still looks to be relatively flat. So that's the other problem, is the flatness problem. Why does the universe look 
as flat as it does, why do we still see all these other galaxies? If it was a little bit more off, if it had been off by only you know, 1%, then we would have either long since collapsed down to nothing again, or long since expanded out where we wouldn't see any distant galaxies. You'd only see us, you know, we'd be here and the night sky would be a lot darker than, than it is. So we have these two different problems that we have to consider. And what we think, what the theory is that, sol- that we think solves both of them is what we call cosmic inflation. And now we're getting way back to the very early history of the universe and you actually start to talk about it in terms of very, very tiny, extremely tiny fractions of a second, you know, smaller than you can possibly imagine. When you're talking about 10 to the minus 32 to 10 to the minus 35 seconds, a decimal point, 30 some zeros and a one, that's a very, very small number. Very, very tiny fraction of a second. But what we think happened there is that the universe went from being incredibly tiny, you know, size of a proton or smaller, you know, subatomic sizes, to being almost normal size. So it went underwent a great period of expansion, or what we call cosmic inflation, and over this tiny fraction of a second, went from incredibly small size to very big and then the expansion continued but just that small that inflation occurred very very early and that seems to solve some of our problems if that occurred it seems to explain some of the observations that we that we make but during this small time the universe expanded 10 to the 50th time and you're getting numbers that you know we talk about billions and trillions being hard to imagine well 10 to the 50th is Beyond, beyond that, well beyond that in terms of trying to imagine the universe expanding by 10 to the 50th times. But essentially you're going from something the size of a nucleus, atomic nucleus, to something the size of the universe. You know, in, I can't even snap my fingers because I can't even do that in 10 to the minus 32 seconds. You could do that, you know, how many hundreds of billions of trillions of times in that much time if you could go that fast. That's how fast that time, how fast that time is. But the universe expanded by that large of an amount. But that helps us because it does explain two of the things that we saw, the two problems that we just talked about. And it was actually able to explain and solve both the horizon and the flatness problems. So what happens is, if you look at it here, and instead of an inflation with the universe, we're going back to the balloon. So we inflate the balloon. You have a 10 centimeter balloon with a little ant crawling on it. Well, that ant can very easily see the curvature of the space, right? It's only 10 centimeters. It can walk around. The th- it could walk around the thing. It might take it a little while, but it can do it. If we inflate that a few times bigger, it's quite a flexible balloon. It can actually go up to a kilometer in size. So, very big flexible balloon that doesn't blow up on you very easily. It start. Everything starts to look a little bit flatter. But if we inflate it at 10 to the 50th times. Well, to scale, okay, that balloon goes out there tremendously and goes back there a tremendous distance and around eventually way off in the, you know, way off, you know, in distant galaxies it'll actually start to curve. It tells us that all we can see then, if we, if we have this inflation, that means that the universe would have expanded so fast that we can only see a tiny portion of it. So all we're seeing, all this ant can see, instead of being able to see the entire universe as you could here, 
where you can see everything, all you can see is your little local portion of the universe. And that little, little bit of it is going to look flat. Right? You're only, you, you blow up that balloon big enough, eventually if you're just looking at a little square inch on it, it looks pretty flat. So that would explain why our universe looks flat. We've just made it so much bigger than it was. It would look curved here. You make it 10 to the 50th times bigger, and all you can see is this one little piece. That's all we can study, because that's all light has had time to travel to us from. We haven't had time for light to travel from beyond that yet, because the universe isn't old enough. So all we can see is this little portion, which gives us a very, very flat looking universe. It also solves the horizon problem, or the, yeah, the horizon problem. Why does the universe look the same in every direction? Well, again, we're only seeing one little portion of the universe. And it was in contact. It was all together in one little speck before it inflated out. So it was all the same temperature. Whatever temperature it was, it was just like taking that little bit and expanding it out and then giving you, so we're going to see it as the same. It's going to look all the same. It's going to be all the same temperature regardless because it was a little tiny bit. There could have been irregularities or differences on this balloon before it expanded, but if you're only stuck looking at that one little tiny section, even though it's gotten many, many times bigger, it'll all look the same. So that would explain why the universe looks the same in all directions. It was just one little speck, you know, one little drop of water that expanded out and got bigger in, your, in the pot. And you're only seeing a little tiny section of the entire universe. All we can see is this little tiny bit of it. So that could explain why it looks so flat. It might be curved. It might be curved inward like the balloon. It might be curved outward like the saddle, as we mentioned last time. But it would be, it, to us, it would look flat when you're only stuck looking at that one little section. OK, bigger scale structures in the universe. Now, what we know is that galaxies, it's, it's a confusion as to how galaxies actually formed. How did they actually start forming? Because they could not form very early, they could not start forming very early in the universe. There was a lot of radiation, and the radiation kept the matter from clumping together. Matter started to clump together, big high energy particles smashed into it and tore it apart. So you couldn't form it. They kept everything very, very smooth early in the universe. Because the matter and the radiation, back before they decoupled, before the atoms formed, they were one and the same, essentially. So you couldn't form any clumps. They kept messing everything up. If you tried to form a clump of matter, you couldn't even form something as small as a planet or you know, atoms. You couldn't even get atoms together or molecules. There was just too much energy there tearing everything apart. So the background radiation couldn't allow anything to form, and we see that today. We can still see that, because remember, we can see that era. When we look at the microwave background, we can see where that decoupling occurred. I told you, you can't see back beyond that, but you can see where the material formed, what the material was like right at that instant. And if it were, if there were lots of variations in the density of matter, so if there were areas where there were big clumps, so there was a galaxy starting to form here or a cluster of galaxies starting to form here, then you should see variations in the microwave background. You should see it brighter here or fainter here. And I'll show you some pictures that actually it looks, the microwave background is actually incredibly smooth and it doesn't matter. As I said, they had the problems with it. It looks exactly the same no matter where you look 
in the sky. So wherever you're looking, it looks the same. That gives us, that tells us that matter did not start, could, could not, did not, and could not start to clump and form galaxies before the decoupling era. Or at least I should say normal matter. Normal matter couldn't. Dark matter is a different case. Dark matter is, doesn't, isn't affected by the radiation. So that's a little bit different and you can actually use dark matter, what we're going to see here in a moment, to actually form the, to form the galaxies. So, because of the way the universe was expanding, the clumps could have been, you could have had some small clumps, and yes, you could have had things that were 50 to 100 times denser. Sounds like a lot here, but when you're talking about the whole universe, it's really, you know, you've got a few more particles. You've got, instead of having one particle in this little box, you've got 50 particles in this little box. It's not a big variation. You're not forming whole big clusters of galaxies or anything by it. The difference is that dark matter is not affected by radiation. So dark matter sort of could have started clumping before. The dark matter then could have started forming clusters or galaxies of its own even before, even while the normal matter was sort of reined in, held in check by the radiation. The radiation kept it from actually clumping together. The dark matter was unaffected. So the dark matter would have started clump, clumping a long time before that. And again, these long times, remember, we're talking about fractions of a second and the first few seconds of the universe. It's not a very long time, but long enough to have actually start, material could have started to clump. But the dark matter wouldn't have affected our radiation. It, didn't, didn't affect, it wasn't affected by the radiation, so we're not going to see it in the microwave background. And we're also going to not see it, in the, so we won't see it in the microwave background, so, but we will see it in terms of gravity. So it actually will help us in terms of forming the clusters of galaxies that we see today. And what we see is more something like this. When we look back at time equals one second after the Big Bang, way, way back in the history, you had dark matter. Remember we said there's a lot of dark matter and only a little bit of normal matter. So it was pretty much evenly spread out throughout space. So no clumps or anything. As we got towards the decoupling, again, we're up to 1,000 years now. So getting close to the time of the decoupling, then we have you know, some variations in the density of the dark matter. So you've got a little bit more dark matter in some areas, a little bit more dark matter in others, a little less in some of the other areas. So the dark matter varied depending on where you happened to be. And it just naturally clumped together because remember the dark matter does work gravitationally. So after a thousand years you had those slight variations, but you notice the normal matter is still completely spread out uniformly. So almost no differences. That's what we see today. We, remember, we don't see the dark matter, we see the normal matter. Then when you go through time and take the next, you know, 100 million years or so and come back, then you have galaxies starting to form the matter. Now that you have these instabilities as everything starts to decouple and they, the matter and energy are now separate, then you have clusters of, you have the clusters of galaxies start to form, but they tend to form where the dark matter was. So you had the dark matter clumping and it will continue to clump and continue to gather in material. It'll pull material in towards the dark matter areas. 
So it'll get one big clump here, one big clump here. And because that interacts gravitationally with the normal matter, if not in any other way, the normal matter tends to get clustered in the same area. So we'll start to then see, here's our galaxy clusters that we see, and here's that 10 to 100 times of dark matter around the cluster that we observe, or we infer its existence. So it just de- it depends on what we're seeing. But that galaxies would then sort of be, would follow that pattern. So however the dark matter started to clump before, early, early in the history of the universe, the first few hundred years or so, then the normal matter would have followed that. Because once it was allowed to, once the things, once the energy density got low enough, then the normal matter was going to naturally be attracted gravitationally to the dark matter. So it would cause clumps in the same areas. So here's an example of what we see with the universe. As we go through in a cold matter, dark, a cold dark matter universe. So there's a couple different things that they use here. But as what you do with the model is they take a whole bunch of areas and they, fill, they run it through a simulation. And you see, again, not stars or anything forming here, but here you're seeing the entire universe, essentially. So you're seeing what the universe would look like 14 billion years later based on this model. Now the only difference that you always see in this is it always gives, it always gives you a center with something at the center. And I think that's mostly an artifact of the model. Just the way you have to put things together to do the calculations, that you sort of have to give it a center. Whereas in reality, there would not be a center, and you'd have to be working dimensionally above that. That would actually cause you some, cause some difficulty. But you do get similar structures. You get the filaments and the voids that we do see in the universe today. We see these filaments of materials on certain scales. We see voids, areas where there's much fewer, many fewer galaxies. So that looks in a way like some of those, maybe three-dimensionally, but looks in a way a lot like those pictures that I showed you the beginning of this chapter, the end of the last chapter of the universe as a whole. There are some structures when you look at the smallest scales and you do see these filaments and these voids. This is just a gravitational simulation adding in dark matter to sort of try to reproduce what we see in the universe. Okay. So, what we see, here's our observation of these little ripples. So I said the cosmic background was incredibly smooth. This is showing you some of the minor variations that we see. And I'll show you one more slide on this, the next one, which is actually shows you how tiny, how tiny they are. But you have some brighter areas in the cosmic microwave background and you have some fainter areas here in the blue. Some brighter areas in the yellow and the green, fainter areas in the darker blue. Just slight differences in temperature. So what that gives us, that's showing us sort of where the dark matter would have concentrated. So you saw areas where there was a little bit more dark matter or a little bit less dark matter. So that, that concentration of the dark matter actually gives us these little, bit of, little ripples. And as I said, this is greatly exaggerated in terms of contrast. If you did that on any normal scale, it would look completely smooth. It's really zoomed in to look at, it's false colored to look at incredible small differences in the temperature. So we said the temperature, the cosmic background radiation was about 3 degrees or about 2.7 degrees. 
So 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. So if you're out in the middle of space somewhere, your thermometer would register 2.7 degrees just from the background radiation that permeates all of space. The differences in this are very small and you look at the scale here, it goes from about minus 300 micro kelvins to 300. That would be about .0003 degrees. So we're saying 2.7 degrees and the extreme variations that we're looking at that are three ten thousandths of a degree more or less than that. So you can see, I'm saying that's very much a, it's a false color image but it's very exaggerated to see, to see very minor differences. If you did it on a normal scale where you were talking about, you know, tenths of a degree or hundredths of a degree, that would look completely smooth. It would all just be one color and the microwave background is that incredibly smooth. When you zoom in and look at the details, you get, looks like the surface of the sun. Remember a picture like that, right? We looked at a picture of the sun with the granulation on the sun. When you look at some of that, you actually see some, you do see some variation. So there are areas where more matter formed or less matter. So if you had more matter, then that would possibly clusters of galaxies, filaments, and you have less matter could potentially be voids. So that's on that eventually expanded out to then to the largest scale. So you do see some, that's some of the structure that was the dark matter. But it was extremely, I just want to bring the point, it was extremely small. When you look at that picture, it makes you look like, oh, there's some areas that are really cold and there's some areas that are really hot. And they weren't the case. There's some that were, what, 2.7003 and there's some that are 2.6997. Not a very big change in temperature. You know, if the temperature in the room increases or decreases by that amount, we're not going to notice it. You, know, you don't even notice necessarily if it increases by a whole degree, let alone that tiny fraction of it. So again, it is zoomed in there, but that you do want to know that that's a very incredibly tiny range in temperatures that you're looking at and you're magnifying the differences there to be able to, to look at them. But that is, th those little variations are what eventually led to the structures that we see, we believe led to the structures that we see today. So those little tiny variations in the dark matter in the early history of the universe have led then to the structures that we see today. And that is about to the end of chapter 17. Let me go through the summary here. Good. All right. So what we saw, again just to summarize, on the larger scale on the larger scales when we went to the biggest areas of the universe, the universe was homogeneous and isotropic. It was the same everywhere I looked. And it was the same any given part of it, if I took one part of it, it was all smooth. So if I took one big chunk of the universe, it looked pretty much like any other chunk of the universe. And it doesn't matter where I happen to look in the sky. The current understanding is that the universe began 14, sorry, 14 billion years ago, not 14 million. Sorry about that. 14 billion years ago in a Big Bang. So some large sort of explosion, although if the video we watched last time sort of told you that don't think about it just as an explosion because it wasn't an explosion in the conventional sense. It wasn't a bomb going off that exploded in space. It was actually the creation of space and time at once. 
What is the future of the universe? Well, it's got two choices. It can either expand forever or it can collapse. And it depends on what the density is. How much matter there is in the universe. If there's enough matter, then we slow down the, we slow down the universe. We slow down the expansion of the galaxies. We eventually stop them. And if they stop, then they're going to start getting pulled to, towards us and everything would collapse in again. So then all of a sudden, instead of having a red shift all the time, you'd have a blue shift. All the galaxies are moving towards you. What we call in between that, the density that sort of tells us whether we're going to expand forever or collapse is called the critical density. So if we have a density more than the critical density, eventually, 20 billion years from now, 30, 40 billion years from now, everything collapses back in and you have a big crunch. Everything crunches together at the end. Or what looks like the observations right now is that we're continuing to expand and expand away and then the universe still comes to an end in a way in that everything slowly dies out as things get further and further apart. Eventually, again, 20 billion years from now, 50 billion years from now, 100 billion years from now, we can't see any other galaxies. They've all expanded out and faded out. Eventually the gas and dust would be gone in a galaxy and you wouldn't be able to form stars even in a galaxy like ours. So you wouldn't form any new stars and the sort of the universe would just shiver out into the cold. High de- in terms of the geometry, and again we looked at this last time, a cl- high density universe is closed, has a closed geometry, meaning that it's taking it down a dimension means it's more like a sphere. A critical universe, what, we, what it looks like, our, ours looks very critical, although it's expanding faster. It looks very flat, remember our universe looks quite flat. And a low density universe means that it's open. So it's an open like a saddled shape. Again, the saddle shape is you've got to go down, you're going down a dimension to try to think about, to try to think about that. Because if you try to think about a three dimen- or a four-dimensional saddle, I can't imagine it. Sorry. I can't imagine a four-dimensional sphere, and a sphere is easier to imagine than a saddle, but but what we do see now when we look at the universe is that the universe is not slowing down. We'd think that gravity should be pulling everything back together. So our gravity is tugging, our gravity from our galaxy is tugging on all these other galaxies. And whether it stops them or not is a good question, but you'd think it should slow them down. The problem is they're speeding up. That's odd. You know, if we take something, if I take something and throw it up in the air, we expect it to stop and come back down. If I throw it harder, it's going to go up higher. But it would be really, I mean, we'd really all jump if I threw it, if I just tossed it up lightly and all of a sudden it started accelerating upwards through the roof. That would, that's apparently what the universe seems to be doing. The universe is, is, seems to be going faster. So these galaxies currently are moving apart even faster than they were 10, 12, 14 billion years ago. We have the approximate age of the universe. I think it's like 13.7 is like the newest, last number I remember reading, something like that. But around 14 billion years old. And then we talked, we started on last time and finished up today talking about the cosmic microwave background. And what that is, is that's the light that's left over from the Big Bang. It was high energy gamma rays when it first formed. The universe has expanded so much and stretched out those wavelengths that now it's all in the radio part of the spectrum. But it comes from everywhere. It comes from everywhere. It's very, very smooth. We just looked at 2.7 degrees or so and very, very tiny. The biggest 
biggest changes are about like 300, 300 millionths of a degree. Right now the universe is dominated by matter. That's what we see. Early in the history it was dominated by radiation. We looked at a little graph of that last time. And the radiation, when there was that much radiation, it kept the matter from clumping. So until it got cool enough and the density dropped enough that matter could actually start to form, you could actually start to form atoms, then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that's when the universe became transparent. So the universe was completely opaque. You could not see through it early on. Radiation did not travel through it the way radiation streams to us from the stars and the sun and the planets that we can actually see them today. At some point when they, when they decoupled, that just means matter and radiation really became sep two separate things instead of just different versions of the same. That's when we see the cosmic background radiation. That's when radiation was free to travel through the universe and it still is. And we still see that today. It's just constantly getting stretched out to longer and longer wavelengths. When it first formed it would have been gamma rays. At some point it would have been visible light. And you, the entire universe would have been bright to, to our eyes. Would have been completely bright. Then it's faded off over the billions of years into infrared and then into the radio which is what we see today. Come back in another 10, 15 billion years it'll go further down to the radio. This temperature will continue to decrease slowly. So this temperature was, you know, when it was visible it was probably 6,000 degrees. When it was gamma rays you were talking many billion, millions and billions of degrees. And as it slowly cools off it'll go, you know, come back and it'll be 2.6 and 2.5. Not in our lifetime. Again, astronomically. Come back in a billion years, two billion years, it'll actually be a little bit smaller. It'll actually get slightly smaller as the universe continues to expand and cool off. And then we talked about cosmic inflation and how that helped us solve two problems, the horizon problem and the flatness problem. Horizon problem was why does the universe look the same over there as it does over there? They're not touching each other. So, and the flatness problem is why does the universe look as flat as it is? It shouldn't look this flat, but it had to be incredibly flat or it wouldn't exist anymore. It would have either collapsed or expanded out beyond where we could see anything. And cosmic inflation is what we use to solve that kind of problem. Finally, the density of the universe seems to be almost exactly the critical density. And that may be because of this inflation. We're only seeing a little tiny chunk of the universe. So we only see that small section of it, so it looks incredibly flat. But if you remember, very little of that, in terms of the entire universe, very little of that is anything that we've studied in this class. You know, all the stars, we mentioned the planets, we talked about the stars, we talked about galaxies and clusters of galaxies. All that normal matter is maybe 3% of this density. So 3% of the entire matter of the universe is what we've studied in this class. Now here's the rest of it that we think is there. Two-thirds of that is dark, what we call the dark energy which is causing the expansion to accelerate. And dark matter is the rest of it. And again, as we saw in the end of lab, lab or in the middle of lab, whenever I put up the article that someone had, email, that had been emailed, said that you know, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't right. Maybe there is something else wrong. So maybe dark matter and dark energy aren't correct. So I can't guarantee, you know, if you come back and take the class again in five years, ten years, that it won't have changed. 
you know, this part of it, this part of it may have changed, especially, you know, we're still learning a lot of things about a lot of stuff in astronomy, but this is right on the edge. This is current, you know, current research that a lot of astronomers are still working on to try to understand dark matter and dark energy. And as I say, when I taught the class even 15 or 20 years ago, dark energy didn't exist. It wasn't even mentioned. Now, it's, now it seems to be a very important thing. Will it still be there 10 or 15 years from now is a good question. Or will it have changed? Will it be, some, will it be something else that we found another explanation for things? Or will it be something else? Or will we understand dark energy a little bit better and actually be able to tell you something about it except that if it's, it's there and it causes the universe to accelerate and that's our current theory of it. Finally, we looked at the structure of the universe. So what do we see today? We said that it could not be formed by fluctuations in the ordinary matter. It does in dark matter. There's simulations that have been done with the dark matter to account for what we actually see, for what we actually see today. So looking at how the dark matter varied told us a lot about how the universe formed and how we ended up with clusters and filaments and voids and all that structure in the, in the universe. So, chapter 17, if everybody's mind isn't blown, no? Still here, okay. That's why it's such a small class today, okay. All right, questions? No? All right, well, we can go on and get a very brief start on the next chapter then. And we'll definitely have all, we'll certainly have all of it finished up for you. So you'll have 16, 17, which we just finished covering, and then 18 as the one exam on the final. So we're going to come back, we're going to come back from the edge of the universe now. So we spent the last two chapters, we're really out at the edge of the universe. Now we're coming a little closer back to home and looking about, talking about life in the universe. And I'm just going to get through the very beginning here and we'll do more of this on, on Wednesday. But what we're going to talk about first of all, today we'll talk about a little about cosmic evolution. And we've looked at some of it. We've looked at how, we just finished talking about how the universe formed, the atoms formed, and we'll take that in more steps and we'll look at some, what some of the other steps are. Now we're not going to go into near as much detail on some of them because a lot of them require a lot more science than just astronomy. Most of what we've talked about are the very early stages of cosmic evolution is the astronomical part. When you start coming on and getting into life, you start to get into more details of chemistry and biology that you need to understand as well. So we're going to go over just a little bit about it and give you a basic idea, but I'm not going into great detail on, on the other stages of the cosmic evolution. And then what we'll look at probably on Wednesday is life in the solar system. So what is the possibilities of other life in the solar system? I probably mentioned a handful briefly when we did our one week rush through the solar system in this class. But there are possibilities, there are some areas, and we'll look at those in a little bit more detail. We'll spend part of the class on Wednesday looking at that. And then what's the possibilities elsewhere in the galaxy? If our solar system isn't so good, you know, where else could life, could life have formed in the galaxy? Life in the solar system, it's possible still there. There could be life in the solar system. But if it is, it's not going to be a civilization like ours. I don't think a civilization is going to be able to hide that easily. I think we're hopefully technologic. Who knows? You know, we might be nothing compared to other civilizations right now. But you'd think we'd be able to detect if there were remnants or something of a civilization that had been on Mars or on one of the other planets. I think most likely if there's anything in the solar system, you're going to be talking about single-celled you know, life, something very, very small. 
Elsewhere in the galaxy is another good question. When you get further out into the universe, then you have, you know, we don't have the technology to really explore it very well. We've done some. We've done some trying to detect. We've done some trying to communicate. And we'll talk about that in what we call SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And, you know, looking for signals from other civilizations and trying to send signals to other civilizations to try to detect them. So the big thing to start off with for this chapter is that if we're going to if we're going to look for life, we have to define what do we mean by life. You know, it's very easy for us to say we, we, only have, we only have one version of life here on Earth. It's all pretty much the same. You know, it's all based on carbon, needs water, this and that. I mean, almost everything we have is pretty much the same. What we don't know, and it's, you know, what does something living have to do and what is it going to look like is very difficult. And that's especially so if we want to allow for something that maybe does not, you know, do we have to think outside the box and think of some other kind of life that might be based on something completely different than what we have on Earth? Could it be based on another type of chemistry? Not just carbon, not just have the same the same types of, not to have the water, not require water. You know, could there be a form of life that doesn't require water but uses some other liquid instead? You know, that's a possibility, but it's something that you tend to not think about because we're very biased towards looking to what we see on Earth. I mean, this is what we see. This is what life has to have. So we're very biased by that in terms of our discussion of it. So we have to think that there could be other, there could be other types of life that, you know, aren't familiar to us. And if we want to go and test for life, if we want to go to Mars and take a sample, what are we going to test for? We're going to test to see what the, what the creature, what the little Martian microbe is doing. And we're going to look for it to be doing things that we'd expect it to do on Earth. Maybe it's something different. So maybe it's not exactly the same, not exactly the same type of, type of life. And we have to take that into, try to take that into account, which is hard to test for what you don't know what you're looking for. You know, it's easy to test for life like we're familiar with on Earth. It's very easy because we know what it does. When you don't know what that life will do or how it will work, that makes it very difficult. So some of the general things that we'll say that any life form, and you can see these don't involve things like specifically talking about water or oxygen or anything else, but an ability to react to the environment, pretty much any living thing on the Earth, and we'd think anywhere else could react, would be able to react to its environment in some way. It can grow, takes in some kind of nourishment. Could be very different kinds of things depending on where you are in the universe. And processes it into energy. So it has some ability to grow to process materials. An ability to reproduce. And an ability to evolve or change. So a couple different things that we think that any life form should have. And I think they're very general. I don't think they're specific. You know, they're not, you're not limiting yourself as much by looking at these. Those are just general things that, you know, to differentiate any living creature from any something that's completely non-living, from some rock that does not react to its environment. It just sits there, right? It does not take in any nourishment. It does not, is not able to reproduce or evolve. So I mean, you can compare that to some kind of living, any kind of living creature that you see on an Earth, whether it be plant or animal or you know, a microbe. 
would all have these types of, they might do them in different ways, but would all have these four main abilities. That they'd be able to react, grow, reproduce, and evolve. So those are four very general terms that we think that any living, any life form should have. Okay, so this is we'll finish up on this one here, cosmic evolution. Now again, we've talked about the beginning. We've talked about the first few stages of this. We just talked a little bit about particle evolution. We talked about the early universe a little bit and the formation of the high formation of hydrogen very early. And then we worked through it. We worked through galaxies, stars, planets, although we worked it kind of this way because we have a better understanding here, so we kind of worked backwards along this diagram. But then the rest of it, which is most of the history of the universe, because if you see, you know, this stars, particles were the very few seconds of the universe, first few years, and the galaxies formed very early on, and then the stars, something like the Earth formed 4.6 billion years ago. When we start talking about life and actually culture, the ways to be able, that we'd actually be able to detect another civilization, then we're talking about most of the history of the universe here. Most of the history of the planet, I should say. So that's where we're going to pick up and we'll come on and talk about, we've talked about this. This is what we covered. This was the majority of the course. Now we're kind of kind of breeze through between today and Wednesday and part of the day Friday probably and talk about the chemical, biological, and cultural evolutions because it takes us getting here for us to be able to detect or communicate with another civilization. You know, we can't communicate. If there's a civilization on a distant star, even around Alpha Centauri, we can send a signal to them. But if they're at our level of the 1700s, you know, we can send them all the signals they want. They're not going to have the technology to detect it or send it back. So it takes a certain level of communica communica communicativity to be able to detect, to be able to detect that other civilization. And that's what we're going to go through. Again, we'll spend most of the day on Wednesday doing that, and then we'll finish it up on, on Friday. Questions, questions? No? No questions. All right. Have a good rest of the day, and I will see you on Wednesday.